Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this podcast for College Success Formula members. I'm Tom Bodorf, co-founder of College Success Formula. The title of this evening's podcast is Who Gets Free Money for College and Who Doesn't? My guest tonight is my colleague and friend, Mr. Dan Bissig. Dan's joining us from the great state of Kentucky. Dan built his organization, College and Beyond, in 2006 after a 15-year career in financial planning. Well, for over 10 years now, Dan's been working with families with college-bound children in the areas of career assessment, building college lists, college admissions, test preparation, and how to responsibly pay for college, just to mention a few. Dan, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, Tom, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, Dan, as you know, paying for college today has become an enormous challenge for families all across the country. Everyone would like some of the free money out there, but there's so much confusion over who gets it and who doesn't. So let's start off, first of all, by talking about the types of free money available for college, need-based and merit-based. How is need-based eligibility determined, Dan? Well, it all starts, Tom, with a family completing their FASVA, which is the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And in that particular case, um, they would submit that. Um, they actually have to obviously gather a lot of information to do it. But the, the process is um, uh, where they go on the computer, they actually input um, a lot of factual information about the student and about the parents. In particular, they're putting in details about, for example, mom and dad's adjusted gross income, the amount of taxes that they pay, the number of members in the family, how many are going to college. I mean, just a variety of details. But it's all going to come down to eventually um, understanding what that family's expected family contribution is going to be. And that's, that's really the critical number that we're looking for because it's the dollar amount that every single college, whether it's a local community college or whether it's the Harvards or the Yales of the world, um, is going to look at and consider then when it comes to need-based financial aid. And we know that need-based financial aid comes in two forms. You know, it's going to come in um, free money through the scholarships and grants, um, and also it's going to come in either work study or, or loans or debt, which is referred to as self-help. But, but the key is it's really four specific items that impact that expected family contribution. And so we probably ought to break those down, Tom. We ought to talk about those. Um, the first is mom and dad's income. And if you think about it, it's their adjusted gross income. Um, they're going to give an allowance for the family based on the number in the household. Um, and so um, let's say that you've got a family of four they're going to allow you to earn about, let's say, $27,000 per year. Um, and every dollar above that is going to count at anywhere from 22 to 47% right. against financial aid. Okay. So as I tell families all the time, it is by far the number one item that has an impact on um, whether the college is going to give you free money or not. And that's adjusted gross income. It is. Yeah, okay. it's, it's absolutely your adjusted gross income. Um, and there are a number of questions that are in there if a family, for example, might own a business. I mean, you've, I, I know uh, we've had this conversation before where some families, you know, they wonder, will a second home that they have count against them? And the answer is yes, it will. Yep, you know, sure the does. equity from that. And, and that really comes into that next piece of the puzzle, which is uh, dealing with 
the assets that they have. Um, and specifically what we're talking about there is their non-retirement assets. Right. You know, so many times families get confused because they see a question on there that talks about their net worth. And the reality is they're looking for money outside of your 401k plans, outside of your Roth IRAs and things like that. But that'll include things like uh, a 529 plan, um, uh, any type of individual stocks, bonds, double E savings bonds, um, cash, you know, money markets, anything like that, including again, like we just said, the value of an investment property. But what they're going to do is they're going to give uh, another allowance. They're going to use what's called an uh, asset protection allowance. And that's based on the age of the oldest parent. So that's where there's a benefit for mom or dad of being, right. you know, the older two A little people. bit older, right. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, let's use me as an example. I'm, I'm uh, almost 52. I can have about $21,000 in those various accounts, but then every dollar above that counts at 5.64% against financial aid. Which is a much lower percentage than the hit on income. Absolutely it is. You better believe it. Um, and, and that's why some families really do get concerned. You know, they look at the amount that they've saved and they immediately think, oh my goodness, you know, I need to rush out and hide this money. <laughs> I hear that uh, all the time. They say, I'm, I'm going to be penalized for saving. Well, it depends on how you look at it. It's, it's, it's not even 6% of all those savings. And and how fortunate they have some level of savings to pay for college. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what a blessing, right, that they've been yep. able to put some money aside. It sure is. I mean, versus the families that come in sometimes and every dollar is getting spent on lifestyle or whatever. You know, Dan, one thing I, I remember from past years on the FAFSA, of course, the and the new FAFSA, by the way, comes out uh, October now, right? October 1st. October 1st. It used to be right. January for like many years, and now it's October 1st. I hope they change it this year. I remember in past years when, when parents would get to the asset area of the FAFSA form, there's a little help box, I think like on the right-hand part of the screen, and there's all of these help notes for assets with a scroll bar. And you have to scroll down to find the place where it says, don't include your home <laughs> equity, your prime residence, in these assets, and I think that's where it even mentions like retirement. And people don't see that. They see this first bunch of notes, but you gotta scroll down, they don't notice the scroll bar. So people always are including home equity of their residence, which they should not, and they often include IRAs. It asks for investments. So they think, well, my IRA is an investment, my 401k, retirement, these are mutual funds and so forth. So that that we found is one of the biggest mistakes that families make when they have come to us to clean up their, their FAFSA problems. Have you seen that as well? All the time. It is such a huge mistake that families make. And, and I get it. Again, they think when it mentions assets, like you said, <laughs> that it includes everything that they've got. The good news is on the FAFSA, it actually protects those types of things. It protects the home equity. It protects the value in your retirement accounts. Now, I, I do want to make a, uh, you know, uh, the one exception to that, of course, is any contributions that you're putting into your 401k plan have got to be added back into the income. Right. So it's not the asset they're assessing, but no. they do assess the contribution as income. Oh, yeah, that's right. Ba backing up a moment to income. So they're looking at adjusted gross income, number one, right? That's the biggest hit typically for most families. But right. then they do look at untaxed income. And boy, that's the big Gotcha, isn't it, Dan? From from 
contributions to qualified retirement plans like 401ks and 403bs. But then also, you know, the other the other untaxed income component that I see families shocked over when they realize they have got to claim it is child support. Child support received. They have got yes. to claim that. And so often, you know, single parents don't realize that. And there might be a relatively low to modest income for AGI, but then that child support needs to be added on top. There's a special line, as I recall, right, for child support received. That's right. Yeah, and, and it really is. It's one of those things that just totally shocks families. They don't realize that those numbers absolutely positively have got to be added into the equation. Um, and it's unfortunate because they're thinking, well, that money's being spent on the child anyway. Well, yes, but um, the government is saying, you know, if, for example, and I know, Tom, you've had this too. I've had families come in before and they said, well, we're just going to put as much as we can into our retirement account. We're, you know, we're going to load that thing up. And I say, that sounds great. I'm glad you're saving for retirement, but the government doesn't care. They're still going to take that information and add it back into the equation. That's right. One, one of the biggest mistakes, you're right on track there. How many times have I heard families say, well, we'll, redu we'll reduce our adjusted gross income by contributing more to our 401k, which from a retirement standpoint is fantastic. But now they're locking up that money where they don't have access to it without penalties and so forth, right? For, right. for college. So it doesn't help EFC at all because there's a special line to add that right back to their, their income that's assessed you know, for the EFC calculation. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate whammy that you get. <laughs> it's unfortunate, and it's, it's uh, a very common mistake. Uh, families be beefing up that 401k, which is a good thing from a retirement standpoint and planning, but bad when it comes to a cash flow standpoint. Then they often go out and borrow money <laughs> to pay for college, or they tap into that 401k, and there's some negative oh. ramifications that you know about being a financial advisor. I'm, I'm not. But I know there's some bad things that happen when you you do that. <laughs> well, it's a huge mistake to make. I mean, you know, the, the best story I can tell you is imagine that mom and dad sacrifice everything they've got to pay for college, including tapping into those 401k plans. And suddenly in the future, when they they're retired, you know, their son or daughter's living out on their own and right. they get this knock at the front door only to discover mom and dad standing there with suitcases on the porch and a U-Haul down the driveway. And they say, why are you here? And it's that time that they say, well, we sacrificed everything for you. So now That's we're right. moving in with you. That's right. Where's our room? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what's for dinner? <laughs> so, so the first two components you were saying for the EFC, this expected family contribution, is the, the, parent asks, or the parent income is assessed, first of all. And that's typically the biggest hit. Then secondarily, we have the parent assets assessed at a much lower rate, but still we have to claim the liquid assets, not not uh, residents, not primary residents, and not any kind of retirement fund either, correct? That's right. Okay, so there's what, two more components? That's right. Yeah, so the, the third uh, um, item that comes into play is the student's income. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that a student can absolutely go out there and get a job. Um, I love that idea of them you know, having a chance to work um, if they can balance it as well with their um, academic successes that they have to have. Maybe Absolutely. Involved in and all that kind of stuff. So the way it works is it's about $6,400 or below. You're okay. Where it becomes an issue is if you earn above that amount, then the student is assessed at 50 cents on the dollar against financial aid. 
So we just have to be careful about that. And uh, Tom, I think you would agree with me. $6,400 job is a pretty good summer job. I don't see that many students earning that much over summer. No, no, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're really busting it out if they're doing that. So, um, so that comes into play. And then the fourth and really the one area that some families can get into trouble with is um, the student assets, because every right. dollar that's in the student's name is assessed at 20%. So think of it this way. If, if your son or daughter has worked really, really hard and they've saved a lot of money and they've saved all those birthday gifts and Christmas gifts and things, you know, the money that they've received, and let's say they've got $5,000 sitting in that account, well, then that's going to be a $1,000 hit on the expected family contribution by that alone. 20% of the student assets as claimed on the and declared on the FAFSA form, right? That's exactly right. 20%. Yeah. You know, it's so, a much bigger hit than the parent assets, isn't it? 20% it, versus, what did you say, about 5 or 6% 5. roughly? 5.64%, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's absolutely a much bigger hit. So just be careful about that. You know, in, in talking to families a lot of times, just realize there are going to be expenses that you're going to have with the student going away to college. And here's the other thing. I mean, would you agree you've probably, or these families have paid for housing, they've paid for food, they've paid for clothing, they've paid for all these school expenses and things through the years. And so they do have the ability to take some of that money and maybe reimburse themselves for that legitimately Sure. for those kinds of expenses that they've had through the years. So that's where there could be a real advantage. Sure. So let me back, backtrack just a little bit here to kind of summarize. So, so families uh, go to file a FAFSA form to determine need-based eligibility for the student, right? And right. oh, by the way, the, the website for that is is now FAFSA, what F-A-F, Free Application for Federal Student Aid, FAFSA.gov. I think it used to be like FAFSA.ed.gov and they simplified it. It's now FAFSA.gov. So that's where the FAFSA form lives, right? Right. And what, one thing they have to be careful about is that there's always two different years worth of FAFSA forms online. And sometimes families get a little overexcited and go in too early and fill out the wrong one. So let's see, for seniors right now, so the class of 2018, they'll go in October 1st. Is that correct? That's correct. This October 1st. And the new FAFSA will be online then. And that will be the 2018-2019 FAFSA, right, for the 2018-19 college years, what they're filling out. Don't fill out, if you're a senior and listening right now, don't fill out the 2017-2018 FAFSA because it will be there. <laughs> right, be it will too. be. Yeah, so on October 1st, fill out the 2018-2019 FAFSA form. And again, the only reason, like Dan said, the only reason you fill out a FAFSA form, it's only one purpose, it's to compute this number, this calculation called EFC, Expected Family Contribution. And when you hit that submit button, They'll show you on your screen, you'll see your EFC, hopefully not for the first time. Hopefully you have a good idea what it is before you submit it. But then that EFC number is transmitted also to the colleges where the student has applied as well. But that's how the whole process begins. And then the colleges will compare that expected family contribution number against their total cost of attendance. And Dan, there's a lot of confusion I know in this COA, this cost of attendance what all is, is comprised within that number, the, the formal cost of attendance of a college? What does that, is that uh, consist of just room and board or is it tuition or what, what is that? Yeah, no, so it's specifically it's tuition and mandatory fees. Okay. Room and board. So in other words, housing and meal plans. 
uh, books. Um, they'll have something in there for miscellaneous expenses and possibly transportation costs. Oh, like a travel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. Of that number, the only number that's absolutely a fixed number is the tuition and mandatory fees. Okay. Because if you think about it, with the room and board, that could vary depending upon how many roommates you have, what kind of a meal plan the student goes with. So that's a variable number. The books, of course, can absolutely change uh, depending upon what you're planning on studying, how many courses you're going to be taking, whether the professor even tells you that you should buy the book. Sure. Um, and then, of course, miscellaneous expenses are going to be uh, some dollar amount. I've seen some pretty crazy numbers with some of the colleges where they put it down and you kind of wonder, well, what do they have a 72 inch flat screen TV and a hot tub in their, in their room, you know? Um, and then of course the transportation costs can be all over the place as well. So, but that's the cost of attendance. So tuition and fees, room and board, books, miscellaneous expenses, and transportation so the, costs. those five components. Now, yep. the, back in your home state there of Kentucky, what are the typical cost of attendance of, of your state schools back there, your public colleges in Kentucky? Yeah, so the big flagship universities are running about twenty to $22,000 a year. For the total cost? Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. So that's all. That's obviously for an in-state student. If you're coming from out of state, in a lot of cases, that's going to go up by at least ten, if not fifteen thousand dollars. Sure. Uh, to do that, and then of course we have some, you know, really good liberal arts schools, smaller uh, private schools in the area as well. That um, I mean, they could range anywhere from say, oh, I don't know, forty, forty-two thousand dollars up to even fifty thousand dollars per year for the private schools. Yes. Okay. Yep. Well, now for our California listeners <laughs> or yes. families that want to come to California with, with their children, our state schools here start around $25,000 for our Cal State schools. And our University of California schools, ready for this? They're getting close to $40,000 a year now. They're in the mid to high 30s. And I'd say probably within another year or two, we'll be at 40000 for some of some of them, like the Berkeleys and UCLA's and San Diego's and so forth. And then our private schools, oh my goodness, it's hard to find a private college in California less than about $65,000 for private schools. The, the exception would be the Christian schools. We have some wonderful Christian schools, Biola, uh, Point Loma, Azusa Pacific. They tend to be in the low to mid 40s, but you get into the USC's, you get into the, the Chapman's and uh, the Stanford's and so forth, you're looking over 70, in some cases, 75,000. We've seen a few colleges now, Dan, I've noticed the formal cost of attendance for some of these schools, some of the Ivies and so forth, they're starting to get dangerously close to $80,000 a year. I mean, it's insane. Wow. The cost is insane. That's why people want this free money <laughs> for college. Yeah. The, the costs are just astronomical. Well, and so, you know, really what, what we're saying here tonight is, uh, or today on this, this whole session is, folks, you've got to do everything that you can to run your expected family contribution as soon as possible so right. that you don't deal with the shock and awe that comes with waiting until it's too late and then you know not having visited the right kinds of colleges you know that fit you financially for example Good uh, it's point. It's just a huge huge deal isn't it Oh it, it's absolutely massive and and families often when they when they learn their EFC for the first time when they're doing like a calculator we have some free software that we can you know, mention to folks uh, yeah. our, our, our members, our clients use it all the time. Um, they can go to the FAFSA site itself. There's a free calculator on there as well. Uh, but families, the first time they see their EFC, I'm sure you've heard this question, Dan. They'll say, now, now, Dan, that's for four years, right? This EFC number I'm seeing, that's for all four years of college, right? 
<laughs> and right, wrong. all the time. <laughs> and I, I mean, it, I hate to be the bearer of bad news when I tell them that, but I say, no, believe it or not, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is one year's worth of EFC, expected family contribution. And they're shocked when they, when they hear that. But better to learn it early than when they hit that submit button on the FAFSA form and see it for the very first time. That shock is just just amazing. You've heard that that same comment? <laughs> All the time, Tom. Yeah, it, it's again, it's amazing. They just really, they had no idea that it could be that high because they look at their own lifestyle and they think we're not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but these schools just have an incredible, um, I, I think you and I would agree, almost an unrealistic expectation of what families can pay for these schools. So, I mean, to that extent, though, that's why families have got to do the research using all the great tools that you provide, you know, to where they can really get out there and understand that there are some great school and college opportunities out there, but they've got to do the research to make it happen. So, Dan, if, if a family learns that their EFC is, is way less than the cost of attendance of the schools they're looking at, then they, they know in advance that they qualify, they're eligible for some level of need-based money. And some of that could be, of course, a, a grant, which would be free money. But what about those families? What, what they do their EFC calculation, and it's way beyond the cost of attendance. Let's say the college they're looking at costs you know, $50,000 for a private school, and their EFC is, is $75,000. They then are in quite a dilemma. They figure, I'm getting no free money at all, right? And that's where the whole merit-based element comes in. So who gets, though, this merit-based scholarship when they don't qualify for need-based money? Yeah, you know, so, Tommy, you'd be surprised, right? In some cases, even families with high EFCs have the ability for a uh, academic superstar of a student to be able to get merit-based scholarships. Um, and, and the reason being is that these colleges are looking for future alumni that they know that they can count on. And, and really, they want to add to their um, student body to also, in some cases, as we know, improve their rankings, you know, how they look out there when it comes to the colleges and so forth. And so we just, you know, uh, the point is, if you do your research, if you look at the different opportunities that are out there, you've got the possibility of understanding what does it take for my student to qualify regardless of our expected family contribution. And that really does come back to knowing what your students' strengths are that they bring to the table um, what is going to set them apart from the rest of the crowd? Because you and I both know everybody's kind of figured out the formula to some extent, right? They know that they've got to have high GPAs, high test scores. They've got to be, you know, taking a really solid curriculum um, at their school. But it's the things that they're going to do above and beyond that are going to set them apart from the rest of the crowd. And so um, for some schools, it's really easy. You go to the to the school and you can see that their merit-based scholarships are based on a specific matrix, meaning if you've got this unweighted GPA and this uh, specific SAT or ACT score, then you'll get X dollar amount. Um, in other cases, it's just a range that you may be eligible to get. So you better be doing your homework. I mean, the... Excuse me, Dan. I love it on those college sites, the admission areas, where they do have a, a matrix and they, they show GPA versus SAT or ACT. And if you have this GPA and this ACT, you get you know, $5,000. Uh, Non-competitive. Here's a merit scholarship. You're guaranteed to get that. We accept you. You will get that. If your GPA is a little higher, ACT or SAT a little higher as well, then you might qualify for $8,000 or $10,000. I've seen those charts go up sometimes to what fifteen, dollars sometimes $20,000. Non-competitive scholarships. 
So those, right. those are great. When, when colleges are bold enough just to reveal that and say, this is what we guarantee if you get in. And that gives the students really a nice goal as well in that, that junior year, you know, maybe early in the senior year, to really achieve that maximum score when they know they're just a few points away from a big scholarship at their dream school. Right. Yeah. And, and Tom, you know, the other part of that, too, is we know that a lot of the big flagship universities, unfortunately, don't do that. And the reason they don't, right. they don't have to, do they? Nope. I mean, they've got <laughs> so many students applying to those schools that they really don't have to give total clarity as to what it takes to qualify for the scholarships. And in some cases, you know, you're thrilled if you get just a little, you know, bone thrown at you, a little bit of money. Um, That's right. You know, so and let's also not forget, though, that the most selective schools out there, a number of them um, also don't give any merit based scholarships out. They strictly give out need based financial aid. Um, and that's all that's a totally different story, too. And the fact that they right. often require additional financial aid forms. You know, one of the big problems I see with uh, with families out here in California, some of the super high achieving students that want to apply to nothing but, you know, the Ivies, you know, the Stanfords, you know, the Claremont Colleges, you know, the Dukes and so forth, that give no merit-based money and families have no idea that that's the way it works. They realize, hey, my daughter, my son has a, you know, a 4.7 weighted GPA and they have a near-perfect test score, you know, 35 ACT. Aren't they going to get in anywhere and get lots of money? No, not at Princeton. No, not at Stanford. If you have an EFC that's $80,000, much higher than the cost of those schools, you can count predictably on not getting one penny of free money from those schools. And I'm still shocked on how many families across the country have no concept of that. That's why it's so important to learn that EFC early. If you have a really, really super high EFC, which about a third of our listing audience does statistically, you know, you're only going to get merit money. So find those colleges that are going to give merit scholarships to your students Right, and apply to those schools, unless you can write the check with no problem. Hey, God bless. That That's fantastic. Right, but that's I find right. very few families, even wealthy families um, that, that really have, have some serious assets and income, very difficult to write a check for you know, after-tax dollars of $70,000, $80,000 a year. We're talking you know, gross incomes, uh, I mean, gross payments of, of, of what? Uh, four by $300,000 of right. checks. So what do they need to earn to write a check for 300 grand? What's that? 400 grand? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uncle Sam's going to get their, their uh, take off the, the top. Right. So amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's absolutely amazing. Well, Dan, regarding scholarships. Uh, so are there, are there typically specific applications required for the merit scholarships or do some schools just give away this free money, these scholarships, because they, they've applied to those schools? Yeah, I, that's a, a great question, Tom. So what you just said is absolutely the case. There are some schools that it's just included in the admissions process. Okay. So if you submit that application and get it in before the deadline, then you're absolutely going to be considered for those scholarships. Is that most common, would you say, Dan? Well, it is, except that there are also plenty of schools out there that have an additional application that needs to be submitted, especially for the most competitive scholarships that are out there. Okay. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. The University of Louisville in, in Kentucky here has the, the Brown Fellows Scholarship, which is a full ride opportunity that's given just to 10 students. So you can imagine how competitive that is and how they, they go through a selection process. 
So because of that, there is a separate application that has to be completed, separate essays, separate uh, letters of recommendation that have to be sent in for that type of, uh, of an application. I see. So, so the, the key with that is don't assume anything. Make sure that you do the research on the schools as to what it takes to qualify. If it's as simple as submitting that application, boy, that's terrific. Sure. You know, just make sure that you get it in before the deadline so that you don't put yourself into jeopardy. But if there's additional applications that have to be done, again, don't miss those deadlines. Make sure that you get on top of getting those requirements done and submitted. And, um, you know, then just sit back and patiently wait. <laughs> <laughs> Patience. Yes, that's the key. Well, yep. Dan, any, any other parting thoughts here? Anything else you want to share with our audience tonight, Dan? Well, the one thing I did want to say about the FAFSA that we need to make sure that everybody remembers yes. is this thing called prior prior. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. You know, so the key with that whole concept is now um, what families are doing. So we're talking about, let's say, students that are going to graduate in 2018. Okay. So seniors gonna, right now. Seniors right now. Okay. And they're going to start in the fall of 2018. So the reality is you are using your 2016 tax return when you're completing that FAFSA. Right. Um, and by the way, fingers crossed, everything is supposed to be back on target, but on October the 1st, the students and the parents should be able to use the data retrieval tool again. Oh, yeah. Which is factored into the FAFSA. It's a button after you get to um, uh, or to the income section okay. where you can actually you click a button. It takes the family out to the IRS website and then they fill in some additional details about themselves, their name, their address, and things. And then what it will do is it will populate that information back into the FAFSA for the family. However, um, because of some unscrupulous things that were done back in the spring when they had to shut it down uh, for a period of time, you will now not be able to see your tax information when it comes into the FAFSA. My, my wife, Lorene, who's an expert on these forms, told me about that. That seems like quite a problem. So, so, so they're, they're populating the form for use from the IRS tax form 1040 over to the FAFSA, but you're not seeing the numbers that are being transferred. You can't verify those? Is that my understanding? You can. You can. In fact, the only way that families <laughs> are going to be able to do it is they're going to have to wait until the colleges download the FAFSA information and then contact the financial aid officers at the colleges. And boy, I bet they're, they're really looking forward to getting all those oh, phone calls, right, Tom? They can't wait. Yeah. Um, and, but that's the only way that you can make modifications to that tax information or the taxable income and the taxes that you paid is by making that phone call. It's going to be an interesting year, I'll just tell you. You know, Dan, so after the FAFSA is, is filed, I know there's historically been this document called the Student Aid Report, the SAR, that's available to download. Will that SAR not even show the income, do you know, that was transferred through the DRT? Tom, I have to be honest, I don't know because there's so much up in the air about the way right. that they're going to move forward with this. I would believe that it's still going to be somewhat hidden information because uh, they're yeah. so worried about identity theft and you know people yeah. getting that kind of stuff. But I'd love to think that if that student aid report is sent out to families, that it would indeed give them at least the notification that, hey, oh my gosh, we need to make some changes to some things and send that information then or have that conversation with the financial aid officer. So that's a, a wait and see at this point. We don't know for certain if that will be visible or not on the student aid report. I would yeah. hope it is, but you know what? I wouldn't be surprised either way, actually. We'll just have to wait and see. 
in October, October one, when that FAFSA comes out, we start filing them you know, with our, our clients and right. uh, look at that SAR. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Yeah. And so the other thing I would say to you, Tom, is this, do not procrastinate when it comes to doing the FAFSA. Yes. Um, and by the way, no matter what your income level is, sometimes families, it, it, you know, think, oh, I shouldn't do the FAFSA. And yet there are colleges out there that expect you to do the FAFSA. Um, I mean, they absolutely do. There's no doubt that the reason you're doing it is to find out whether you have any financial need. And as we know, every college is different as to how they'll fill that need. It hopefully is going to be, like you said, through grants, uh, maybe some other scholarships that the student might qualify for. Uh, but unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the biggest uh, resource that they use to fill that void is loans. Right. Um, unfortunately. So unfortunately. now with this prior prayer years, you said for families that have seniors right now that will file the FAFSA as early as October 1, they'll be using their 2016 return. Yes. Most families should have their 016 return filed by October 1st of 2017, right? Well, I sure hope so. Yeah. So there's no reason to, to wait. Not that families need to do it October 1st. There's this myth that we've heard for years. You'll get the FAFSA in day one and you will get the most money. No, that's not true. We're telling our families, Dan, that if you file your FAFSA this year, if you have a senior, if you file it by, what, even Thanksgiving, you're, you're in good shape. The decisions for admissions haven't even been made yet for the, for the most part. Maybe some early action, early decision, maybe. But so many schools don't have their f decisions until you know, January through the March time frame. So, well, but, but, but no, no reason to procrastinate, though. Do you, do you agree maybe October, November? Don't wait yeah. until December, January. You've got your taxes done. Just get that sucker in there. Get that behind right. you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll tell you that the only exception to where you may, I mean, the, the, where it would create a sense of urgency for you doing it is like here in Kentucky, we do have some need-based money that's provided by the state of Kentucky to families whose adjusted gross income, you know, is let's say 40,000 or below. In other words, families that are gonna qualify for the Pell Grant, right. um, maybe the Federal Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant, those dollars do go fast from the state okay. of Kentucky. And so it is a, a, a deal where the sooner you get it in, the better. Ah, okay. Um, okay, and there are some other states that have some things similar to that. So just be, you know, be careful, know what your state's situation is. More importantly, if you run your EFC early enough, you'll know whether or not you're going to qualify for those need-based opportunities. And if you're one of those people, make sure that you get it done soon. And if you're stuck, get help. Make sure that you get help to get it done. Don't procrastinate in that particular case. Dan, you've probably heard through the years, as we have, that uh, a lot of times schools will tell parents, don't, don't seek any help. Don't, don't pay anybody for any kind of help on these forms. The forms are free. So why would you pay someone? My response for the last decade has been, you know what? IRS tax forms are free too, aren't they? But how easy are they to fill out correctly? Nobody says don't hire an accountant or tax professional or CPA to help with your taxes. But don't think about having somebody help you with your FAFSA form. It makes no sense at all. So I've always it, said that's bad advice. <laughs> I totally agree, Tom. And the other thing is, look at the price tag of what you're paying for college. I mean, if you can't justify spending a little bit of money to get an expert to make sure that you're doing things right, I think you're crazy not to. I'm um, with you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, Dan, in the interest of time, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. We'll let everybody sign off now. 
Uh, great information on this whole free money concept. Thank you so much. Now, if anyone has any questions, Dan, how can they best contact you? Yeah, there's actually two ways. Um, they can either visit my website, which is collegeandbeyondllc.com. Um, they can send me an email at danbissig at collegeandbeyondllc.com. Or I guess the third way is through a phone number, which is uh, my office, 859-283-2655. Oh, wonderful. And before we sign off tonight, Dan, I want to be sure to mention your new book, College Entrance Game Plan. I noticed that Chapter 16 is all about the EFC calculation. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Absolutely, Tom. So it uh, was written by Ryan Clark and I, and the whole premise behind it was we wanted to give an easy workbook for families to be able to pick up and for it to be able to walk them through step-by-step -step, um, all the pieces of the college process. So think of it this way. It's, it's a running roadmap for them. It gives them the ability, starting as early as the seventh grade and all the way through the 12th grade, to have monthly timelines to follow, uh, to do, um, you know, they've got in there all kinds of websites and things that we've put in there. Uh, we've got, for example, um, you know, details in there about other scholarship uh, places that they can search. But it's just a great resource that families can use um, as they're working their way through um, the college process. Excellent. And I strongly endorse the book, everyone. My goodness, I don't give many books endorsements in the whole college planning business. This is one of them that you've got to get. College Entrance Game Plan. And I think, Dan, you, you had a, uh, a discount code, I think, set up for our members, right? What was that discount I, code? I do, yeah. So if, if your members will use um, the letters C for college, S is in success, F for formula for so CSF. Oh, nice ring to it. College um, success formula. Okay, CSF. That, huh? Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, <laughs> but what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to get an eleven dollar discount off of the ebook version of our book. Oh, wonderful! Thank, thank you for that, Dan. I appreciate that. Very nice of you. Well, I want to thank you, College Success Formula members, for joining us tonight. And whether you're listening to us live or the recording at a later date, and again, I encourage you to visit Dan's website. That's College and Beyond llc.com. You'll find some fabulous information there, including this great book that he wrote. Okay, so as always, we're here to help you plan for your college success. You can contact us at support at collegesuccessformula.com, or you can send me a text at 949-234-6495. So until next time, take care, and may God bless. Good night, everyone.